and welcome back to the Connecting the Dots podcast. We are here intermittently uh, podcasting about uh, all kinds of stuff, life, the universe, and everything from a Christian Catholic perspective. And uh, today, I'm having my good friend, Mr. Rod Bennett, on the show. How you doing, Rod? I'm very well. Happy to be talking to you again, Mark. It's been, yeah. been a while since we've talked. Yes, I hope you had a good Christmas and a New Year. Very nice. How about you? I did. I had a good. I had a good time, and uh, now we're back to you know the realm of the White Witch. <laughs> it's always it's been mighty cold here too. Always winter and never Christmas. Well, here we don't even get cold. I mean, it's just like the worst part of winter. Because it's just, it's like 40 degrees and raining all the time. Oh. And uh, so, you know, it's building up a big snowpack in the mountains, so that's good news. And uh, But uh, anyway. Well, okay, well, that sounds good. Yeah, and, you know, this, uh, this show is broadcast on Breadbox Media, and it turns out that Breadbox Media is about to have a new podcast in the Breadbox family featuring... Rod Bennett. Yep, that's the case. So, talk about the talk about your show. Well, I've been contacted by the good folks at Breadbox to uh, uh, to put a podcast idea that I've had kicking around in the back of my mind for some time uh, on Breadbox and uh, to uh, make myself thus available. So, uh, uh, the sh- new show will be called the Popcorn Cathedral. It's based on the book of the same name, <laughs> a book of my uh, film and media essays uh-huh. that came out a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, it's it's a bit of a, a lark, really. Uh, Breadbox has specialized uh, uh, has specialized in uh, you know theological and and devotional type podcasts, mm-hmm. and uh, the. I think at the new direction that they're going, they want to try to broaden things out a little. So like I say, this is a bit of a lark for me. This is the, the not quite so serious side of Rod, Uh Uh, basically Catholic and other types of Christians getting together and geeking out about their common interests of uh, film and fantasy and that sort of thing, all from a Christian perspective. Oh, very, very good. You know, and that actually was my secret plan for today. This can be your, it's like your, your practice podcast. (laughs) Well, hopefully it'll be interesting (laughs) enough that it will serve as a commercial for the new podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People will get a preview of what it is that we're going to be doing and uh, uh, and be interested in bopping over to uh, my side of things every now and then. Well, one of the things that I was um, graced with this Christmas, my son is a, a movie buff, and uh, out of the generosity of his heart, he gave me the three great... Uh, Willis O'Brien contributions to civilization. Well, not counting the Lost World. We, I didn't get the Lost World, uh, but I did get uh, King Kong, Son of Kong, which I have never seen, by the way. Oh, really? I have haven't it. seen or hadn't seen. Have not seen yet. I, the The plan oh, okay. is right. to watch it together with him at some point. Okay, uh, that should be fun. 
So I yeah, so uh, Kong, son of Kong, and also Mighty Joe Young, which is sort of where Willis O'Brien handed the baton to um, Ray Harryhausen. I think they were both involved in that project. Absolutely, yes. And um, uh, yeah, they kind of you know they they uh, giant ape movie. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, when you think about it. That's just a really weird concept. You know, let's make a movie about giant apes. Why, the giant ape genre. <laughs> why? Why giant apes? I mean, you know, you could do, and and of course they did do giant dinosaurs. What they knew of dinosaurs at that time, and right. Well, essentially, King Kong is a a remake of the Lost World that you mentioned, the nineteen twenty five silent. Lost World movie, uh, Willis O'Brien, mm-hmm. just with a better main character. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, and uh, very much. I mean, and one of the here's one of the nice things that goes with the DVD of King Kong is you get a little documentary that was done by somebody or other uh, called "I Am King Kong." about the guy who made King Kong. Right. Uh, Marion Producer Marion C. Cooper. Marion right, yeah. C. Cooper, who what, is just an authentic American original. There is nobody like this guy. He just lived this epic life. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and in the middle of this epic life, this was like the middle of his career. Uh, when he just dreamed up King Kong because he he was interested in airplanes. There's a whole story that goes with his interest in airplanes that's epic. And uh, uh, well, he sort of stumbled into the movie business. Yeah, he, uh, he went from being this fighter ace of World War One and uh, all around adventurer, shot down uh, behind well, enemy lines. Really, really, the Carl Denham character in the original King Kong is a is a kind of a funny portrait, fancy portrait of Marion C. Cooper himself. He's a filmmaker who kind of seat of the pants, uh, jungle adventure documentarian who, uh, you know, took a hand cranked movie camera in the silent days to all of these places that nobody could even find on a map at, at, at that early period, really, and just shot these incredible uh, documentary films. And he sort of ended up parlaying this combination of his uh, National Geographic streak with uh, an interest in photography. He ended up parlaying that by the 1930s into a movie producer's career. Yeah. He's sort of one of the least likely people you would think of to become a movie producer. Yeah. He really was a man of action. Yeah. But uh, he wound up a producer. Yeah. And he was also not just King Kong. Uh, he teamed up with David Selznick, and he's a producer of some of the great movie classics. Uh, yeah, the early nineteen thirty-three Little Women has his name on it, and uh, a lot of great classics up up to some of the uh, well-remembered uh, John Wayne, John Ford uh, collaborations in yeah. the forties stuff. Like made, made, made stuff the like Quiet uh, Man. She wore a yellow ribbon. Yeah, and Quiet Man. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, and he's a guy who, you know, he, he, he there, there's a lot of just great serendipity, you know, in his, I mean, amazing serendipity shot down behind the enemy lines. He killed a man. 
uh, escaping from a prison camp. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and well, also after World War One was over, he just decided to hang around and uh, fight for the Poles in the Polish independence. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, uh, just out of, you know, just sheer heroic noblesse oblige, he looked at the Poles being attacked by uh, the Soviets and said, well, somebody's got to step up. So well, just... like a lot of uh, like a lot of men who are a little under height, one, another way that he's like uh, Denham is that he wasn't a big, tall, imposing man. And uh, he also was uh, had a very thick southern accent. He was a kind of a Florida cracker from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh-huh. And he had a uh, uh, but he seems to have had a, a, the, the man that had to get tough because he was a little on the short side, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And it's driven him, uh, drove him all his life, apparently, to greater and greater achievement. And yeah. uh, uh, feats of bravery. Yeah. Conspicuous <laughs> feats of bravery. No kidding. No. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole story about him crash landing his plane, uh, you know, trying to save him and his gunner. This is during World War One, And his his engine catches fire and the, the flames are licking his hands. So his hands are burned. So he's trying to manipulate the stick. And it's literally just a stick. This, we're talking about World War One aircraft, right, you know, right. with his knees. And he manages to bring the plane to the ground. And he thought his gunner was dead, but he wasn't sure. And uh, and so he's badly burned, and he saves his gunner's life. He pulls him out of the plane, you know. And the guy's just an amazing guy. And uh, and then winds up in a Soviet prison camp. Uh, during the the Polish just campaign, one one damn thing after another. Yeah, yeah, just an amazing <laughs> guy. And then, but but what I love about the guy, and this is this is the thing that that is just the man has panache. You know, once he gets out of prison, the Poles give him a hero's welcome, and the, you know they offer him anything, and he, no, I, I won't take anything. You know, it was just just doing my duty, ma'am. You know, and then. Uh, they they send him home, and he he arrives in New York City with two bucks in his pocket, and he buys a coat with one buck and gives the other buck to a beggar. <laughs> and then you know it's it's just I'm back in America. I'm going to start my life over. And it's, it's what a what a story, you know? Yeah, it's great. He, he's something. Yeah, yeah, just an amazing guy. And now, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and a big kid. He, it, it's easy to forget that gorillas were discovered just shortly before his birth. This was, this was a big only deal. actually verified in 1910. Before oh, that, really? they they had been yeah. Before that, they had been in uh, they had been in Bigfoot territory right, they right. basically they were they were in the same way we think of bigfoot before they were it was actually nailed down that it was a real thing stories had filtered out of africa for probably centuries but it was actually proved not to be mythological just a few years before that so yeah, yeah. so in his another thing that isn't known that isn't known so commonly is that king kong in some ways rather than being the first gorilla movie was sort of the last 
because in 1930, 31, there was a sort of a little mini burgeoning genre of exploitation movies with gorillas that had a hankering for human brides. <laughs> Not a very savory uh, uh, genre. It was. It wasn't. This is how Bigfooty gorillas were in the public mind at this time. It was somewhat of an open question as to whether a uh, a uh, conjugal relationship between the two species might be possible. Right. Well, and remember, so, this is you know this is the era of popular Darwinism. Right, right. So the the one of the concept and, and and frankly, you see similar uh, speculations made about Bigfoot sometimes. Is is this mm-hmm. some kind of early form of human? Right. And, uh, and so and the original concept for King Kong was much more human than uh, than what we actually see on the screen. If you look at some of the uh, conceptual artwork that was done early in the pre-production. Uh, he's much more of a uh, an ape man looking character, almost like a Neanderthal. Hmm. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. He he gradually became more ape like as they went, just because the the quasi human version looked ridiculous. So okay. uh, yeah, but that you're right. That's a very uh, interesting aspect of all of it. That's you know I had never thought about that at all, but you're right. Also, if you look at the original book, the original Tarzan of the Apes book, the apes in the tar- in the 1914 Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan of the Apes are not really apes. They're they're like uh, proto humans. They can they have a language, and one of the reasons that they relate to Tarzan the way they do is that they're much more intelligent than a real ape. And that again comes out of the fact that none of this was very well understood at the time. That so, is really interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're the in of course in the movies they've gone back to making them gorillas, which is doesn't really make a great deal of sense. But in the in the in the book they're they're tribal. That is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay. And it's all it all leads into the to the King Kong story. There's actually a real interesting point <laughs> for listeners who may be <laughs> beginning to despair. Uh, I actually do have sort of a sort of a point. And I actually, do, I, I actually do have a, a pretty interesting story with a Christian element, a Christian theme that's built around the movie King Kong, the 1930 King Kong movie. So uh, okay. if you're wondering what's Christian about all of this, <laughs> I'm getting that. I'm getting there. Hopefully okay. Uh, okay. it's a long circuitous road, but actually you gave me a good lead in there with right. the idea of uh, Kong as, uh, as maybe uh, uh, a quasi-human ape man. All so right. Go ahead with what you were going to ask. Well, no, I was just going to say, so, yeah, that's the other thing, you know, so there were uh, all these themes in Marion C. Cooper's life that all came together, including, by the way, one that we've neglected so far, which was his serendipitous meeting with and friendship with a guy named Ernest uh, Shodzak. Right. Uh, he was an American guy, Jewish guy, who somehow or other he made friends with Shodzak. And so once he got back to America, uh, he and Shodzak teamed up and they started – he became Carl Denham, the the guy who goes out to film King Kong. That was just Mary C. Cooper. 
Absolutely. In fact, the scene in the movie where uh, where Denham uh, explains why he doesn't use a cameraman anymore, why he does his own photography now, he says, uh, uh, he says, oh, I was on a trip to Malaysia once and uh, had a cameraman with me and I uh, wanted to make scenes of a of a tiger. And uh, I was there with a rifle. I was going to, you know, get him and stuff if he got out of hand. But the cameraman got got scared and ran off and uh, uh, <laughs> right in the middle, ruined the shot. He got scared when the lion tiger charged. And uh, he says the, 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 the he says the darn fool should have known I was there with a gun. He said, uh, uh, he said, I, I would have got him. You know, <laughs> said, I, I don't fool with cameramen since then. I do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, that was showed that was Cooper all the way. That yeah. actually happened to him, by the way. He said he learned photography because the he couldn't find a cameraman with enough nerve to take the scenes that he wanted to, wanted to shoot. <laughs> Yeah, so so they went around the world and made you know documentaries about you know faraway places with strange sounding names because right yeah and, and again you know you can hear that in the dialogue of King Kong it's absolutely you know, what you know what are we doing well it's it's you know the, the thrill of a lifetime you know yeah, yeah. And a long sea voyage and. And that was that, that was guy. their life. Yeah, that was right. Their, that life. Was their yeah. life. You know, we're gonna get on a boat like the Venture, and we're gonna go to Afghanistan, and we're gonna film people doing whatever it is. Well, they went. They went to Persia. They went to Malaysia. In fact, they recorded some incredibly valuable footage of a tribe that doesn't even exist now. A tribe of nomads who, who, uh, who no. Uh, uh, migrated across at like a 14,000 foot mountain range every spring in order to find fresh grass to eat. Yeah. And these people don't even exist anymore. And he makes this inc made this incredible document. He and Chotzak made this incredible documentary film called grass. If you get it, it is on DVD if you get a chance to see it. And so they, they sort of found adventure. They just had a nose for it. And uh, so, yeah, the, the characters in the movie, of Denham and Driscoll are sort of fancy portraits of uh, of uh, Cooper and Shodzak. Yeah, and and they show up, by the way, in King Kong. Uh, right. <laughs> well, so does another element. Cooper and Shodzak uh, were both in love with the same woman. Ah, her name was Ruth Rose. She was originally hired to be a writer for for them. And uh, but she had a taste for all this adventure, too. And uh, uh, there was a for some time a kind of a love triangle between the three, Cooper and Chodzak and mm. Ruth Rose. So the Denham, Driscoll and love triangle, except that it's not a triangle, it's a quadrangle because Kong is involved also. <laughs> is uh, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the more interesting thematic things going on in the movie. Uh, it's let me I'll go ahead and tell you that some years back, I actually wrote a screenplay for a King Kong remake. This was before Peter Jackson made his version. OK, so he sort of, he sort of stole any uh, hope of getting my version produced. But <laughs> but well, just, the, uh, you know, I still you... think to this day. Yeah, another 20 or 30 years when I'm 100. Right. <laughs> but no, uh, the. uh uh, I still think, in spite of everything I've done, I think the best thing I ever wrote was that King Kong screenplay. 
Hmm. And one of the things that freed it up to be really great was because I was able to be much franker about this triangle between uh, Denim and Driscoll and uh, Anne, or we might even say between Cooper and Shodsack and Ruth. Mm-hmm. Than they were able to be out of okay. for modesty's sake, they disguise things a little bit. Okay, uh, I'll go. I'll go ahead and tell you that in real life, Shotzak won. Right, the the the, the tall, better-looking fella with the Gary Cooper sort of looks won. Yeah. So Carl Denham uh, uh, winds up the odd man out in, yeah. in the story, just like he does in the movie. But uh, uh, but the I was able to be a little more frank about all of this, and simultaneously a little bit more frank about the the themes that are going on in it, the, uh, uh, I mean, I won't go deeply into this. It's a rabbit trail, but, uh, uh, there's thematic stuff going on that maybe even those guys didn't know completely, couldn't be completely comfortable with that figures into the, the mystery of why the original King Kong is so resonant in, in the way that none of the remakes have captured. Interesting. And, uh, and it has to do with the nature of love and, uh, uh, and up to and including divine love, even though I don't know that these guys knew they were getting a hundred miles uh, within a hundred miles of that. But mm-hmm. uh, but hopefully we come out, bring out some of that more as we, as we go. Well, it's interesting to me, you know, now that you mention it, because in the in the original film, uh, there there's Denim's character, as near as I can tell, evinces no interest at all in Anne except as being useful for the movie. Uh, and, right. in, and in fact, what's it's really quite shocking how callous he is toward her. <laughs> you know, so there's that whole scene where he makes her scream, which is kind of sadistic. Yeah. Right. And uh, well, keep in mind, they, they uh, uh, one of the at one point, the sailors uh, watch what he's doing and say, is he crazy? And they say, no, he's just enthusiastic. He uh, he's he's a guy who the film is everything. Right. In other right, words, exactly. it, it does. You, you do whatever you got to do to get the scene. You know, precisely. Yeah. And, and in the Peter Jackson version, they make they 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 push that to such a degree that Denim becomes a villain. Right. And uh, uh, the. Uh, without getting too far ahead, uh, remakes of King Kong have always had trouble figuring out what it is that makes Kong so resonant. They always, almost always get it wrong. In fact, I will say always get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, it's, it's a very misunderstood story because I think it's very uh, puzzling. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons it's mythic and suggestive is that it's hard to put it into words what the theme is. Mm-hmm. And and people who have re- remade it have tried to simplify it and make it uh, make more sense or be able to be explained in words. Mm-hmm. And even even Cooper and Shodzak themselves with Mighty Joe Young, which is sort of a quasi remake of the original Kong, mm-hmm. get it wrong. Uh, the, the degree to which uh, the degree to which it's misunderstood it is you can you can figure it out by looking at what happens to denim the remakes almost always turn denim into a villain mm-hmm. because the story hasn't got one otherwise mm-hmm. in their in their in the remaker's opinion right in other words they've turned uh kong and Anne into a pretty simple girl and her dog story right in other words she <laughs> it's a, it, it she's she's 
protecting the big beast that she was scared of first, but now the sheriff is coming to shoot the rabid dog and she's, uh, it's a tragedy. You know? Right, right. And that's not what the original Kong is about at all. Okay. And uh, uh, Kong is the villain in the original Kong, but he's like, it's like in an Orson Welles movie, the villain and the hero are the same person. Kong is both the, the villain and the hero, and Denim is us. Mm-hmm. Denim is uh, is our audience identification uh, device. In other right. words, he wants to see what we want to see, and we see the story through his eyes. Right. And uh, and at the end, when he gets his comeuppance, we get ours too, and that's the whole uh, kind of point of the Denim character. Hmm. Okay, but, interesting. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I am getting ahead of myself. But uh, uh, but yes, I think uh, the fact that there's uh, the, the the mysterious significance of the Kong story, why it's been so uh, resonant through the centuries and uh, not centuries, the decades, in a way that's hard to recapture. Mm-hmm. Goes, gets, we get right to the heart of it when we see Kong. Uh, crucified in the theater in New York City. Mm-hmm. You might think, now that's a stretch, crucifixion. No, he's literally on a cross mm-hmm. inside, inside the theater. He's been he's been uh, chained in a, the position of a crucifix on a cross uh, on display. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's so explicit that it's very hard to think that the filmmakers didn't realize what they were doing. And that some the first time I started thinking about this, I saw a kid at a, a science fiction convention wearing a T-shirt with a, a picture of that scene. Mm-hmm. And the caption on the shirt was King Kong died for your sins. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you know, the kid was probably just getting a kick out of yanking everybody's chain, you know. Right. But it set me off on a long thought process about uh, is it possible that that Kong is some sort of a Christ figure. And if so, what is, what about Christ is he a figure of? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it's a pretty grotesque, uh, you know, when I've mentioned this to some people, they, they've thought, well, he's a horrible monster. Isn't it blasphemous to compare him to Christ? Well, Jesus doesn't really have this problem. Jesus himself, by the way, he compares himself to some pretty, pretty inappropriate Christ figures. <laughs> he, can, he compares himself to the brass serpent that, uh, right. That Moses, that Moses put up in the desert, right. A serpent that was a symbol of the very thing that caused the problem. Right. And yet Jesus himself said, just as the Moses raised the serpent, lifted up the serpent. So will the son of man be lifted up. Yeah. So that's a pretty strange Christ figure, a little mm-hmm. bit horrible. Mm-hmm. In fact, eventually they ended up having to take the brass serpent and grind it up into powder and make people drink it. Do you remember this? <laughs> yes, because it it, yes. it 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 was it was it it wound up as a kind of an heirloom in Israel. An idol, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they yeah. they hung on to it for you know for years and years, and it went from its intended use. By the way, there's a whole you know. <laughs> I, I can think of parallels in church history, you know, of things that were useful and helpful one time to- at one time that, yeah, that wind up becoming yeah. idols. And so eventually well, uh, they have to destroy the bronze serpent. Some smart aleck might say, well, God was the one who ordered the darn thing made to 
to begin with, and surely he should have noticed the uh, similarity to an idol <laughs> and the danger for yeah. this kind of thing. And that's a whole other subject for another day. But, uh, uh, yeah. but no, there's no question that there's no question that God was uh, okay with the brass serpent, and Jesus is okay with comparing himself to the brass serpent. Also, he compares himself at one point to Jonah, who is a pretty terrible Christ figure. <laughs> Yes, jo- jo- Jonah is sent to reclaim the city of, of Nineveh, sinners, back to God to be a kind of a preach salvation to them, and he doesn't want to do it. He runs, he flees, and he yeah. never really does get over it very well. Yeah, one of the reasons he has to uh, be swallowed by the fish is because he's a lousy prophet, you know. And uh, even at the very end of the story, when you think, okay. It's a great story about a prophet who was reluctant, didn't have enough faith, got thrown to a fish, and God saved him by a miracle. And then there's a happy ending. He goes back and preaches, and he's a good prophet after well, that. Happy no, for the Assyrians. <laughs> he's terrible. In fact, the ending of the book of Jonah is Jonah sitting down under a tree and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm so salty about all of this and what's happened to me that I'm just going to sit here and die. Yeah. And uh, God says, is it right? He explained, he asked him, is it right for you to sit here under the tree and pout? Uh, I mean, we saved however many thousands of people who didn't don't know their left hand from their right. And uh, is it appropriate for you to sit down here and pout the way you're doing? And Jonah says, yes, it is appropriate. <laughs> and then that's the end of the book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet Jesus says, I'm like that guy. As, as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. So <laughs> Jesus himself compared himself to some pretty iffy Christ figures, and not to mention the church fathers and the uh, synagogue. All uh, Well, the, the church fathers compare... Uh, uh, they find Christ figures everywhere, including Samson. One of the very best ones is Samson. And yet Samson, in many ways, is a terrible Christ figure. Of course. And uh, so anyway, that's a little <laughs> a little digression. But for those who might ask, is it appropriate to compare uh, the Savior of the world to a giant rampaging prehistoric monster? Uh, my answer is yes, it's appropriate because he does <laughs> – Similar things, and it's hard to miss. Yeah. Uh, uh, the 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 crucifixion thing is very clear, and all of the dialogue uh, surrounding what's going on with Kong's sacrifice is pretty clear, right? You remember when when Denim displays Kong on the cross to the cynical uh, sophisticates, you know, New York crowd, he. Uh, he says he was a king and a god in the world he knew. But yeah. now he comes here merely as a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Uh, and it, that connects to a, to a previous piece of dialogue where Denim is explaining how he knows that Kong will come after Anne and that they can use her as bait to capture him. He says uh, uh, He says he was safe on the mountaintop. Uh, where a whole army couldn't get at him, but he couldn't keep away from beauty. 
Mm. All of this is is very uh, quasi-conscious uh, evocation of the idea of a god brought low. Right. In other words, you don't have to read anything into this dialogue about somebody who was a king and a god, but that he was brought low because he... he and for he, the sake he, of love. Right, yeah. Early, early in the picture, Denham is explaining his idea for the movie he wants to make, and he says, uh, it's Beauty and the Beast. He says the, uh, uh, the king was a tough guy, too. The beast was a tough guy, too. Uh, uh, he uh, uh, he was he like I said earlier he was safe on a mountain and where nobody could get him, but he couldn't keep away from beauty. He uh, he forgot his wisdom and the little fellows licked him. Yeah, that's a very very stirring evocation of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't explain that aspect of the incarnation any better. Yeah, that that God by nature, God who is Im- impassable by nature incapable of suffering Mm -hmm. deliberately in order to accomplish a mission that he's kind of obsessed with a mission of love he he takes on flesh and by by doing it makes himself vulnerable yeah In, in a way in other words there was no way for anybody to hurt god before the incarnation yeah but because of the incarnation, it was possible for a the little fellas to have their hour, yeah, of uh, of, of triumph, you know. God and cracked. in the immortal patois of 1930s movie dialogue, God cracked up and went sappy. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly right. And he, and over a frail little thing that uh, uh, that it was really unworthy of him in a way. In other words, the, the king and the god was brought low by something really small and insignificant yeah. in the eyes of his enemies, of course. So uh, uh, suddenly, when you look at all of this, you think, well, maybe maybe putting Kong on a cross was deliberate. Now, here's where the story gets more interesting still, and that is everybody who ever heard this idea who was involved with making the film hotly denies all of it uh-huh they says no this is critics you know doing their thing reading meanings in where there aren't any uh you know they're uh they're they're just imagining things you know we wanted to make an exciting action adventure story we had no intention of putting across any deep powerful cynic- uh, sophisticated message and that's pretty interesting. I mean, the cross thing itself is is pretty hard to miss. But it also makes you think of other films where something similar similar happened. Um, how familiar are you with the great 50s sci-fi classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still? Oh, yes. Day the Earth Stood Still is a great movie about a, a, a an ambassador from the other world who gets sent to Earth on kind of a mission of mercy to explain to us that we've been uh, are messing around with rockets and atomic power, nuclear weapons and stuff has uh, got called us to the attention of the people of the other planets. And they, they want to contact us and let us know you've got to grow up in a hurry or we're going to have to wipe you out because we can't have irresponsible people flying around in 
rockets with with nuclear power, nuclear weapons, you know. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, it's a it's a story about an emissary from the heavens who comes down and says, "You're flirting with danger here. You're uh, uh, you may have to be uh, liquidated if you don't uh, if you're not careful." Who takes and, the name uh, Mister Carpenter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, because you, you bring up. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just gonna say with that script, the the uh, the screenwriter was absolutely, deliberately, and carefully making those parallels. Well, it's actually it's a bit bit more sophisticated than that. Edmund yeah. North, the writer you're talking about, admits that Mr. Carpenter was deliberate. Mm-hmm. Okay, but Julian Blaustein, who was the producer of the film, a Jew, not a Christian, right, uh, had already come up with most of the story before. Uh, uh, before the film, before Edmund North was ever brought in. So North found the stuff there already and sort of decided to pitch in and help. Right. If you see what I'm saying. Uh-huh. Blostein hotly denied all of it, even after the movie came out. And that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Similar thing happened a couple of decades later with Steven Spielberg and E.T. Right. E.T. is is also pretty hard to miss. <laughs> yes. I mean, he he came down from heaven. He gets adopted into a human family. Loves little, children. Yes. Has the uh, they, go, heal. they go out of their way to uh, establish for us that the mother's name, who has no husband around, who they establish that the mother's name is Mary. <laughs> they uh, uh, he dies. He comes back to life again, and uh, after he does, well, he's got the power of miracles. He can heal the sick and and uh, uh, raise himself from, from the dead, apparently. Right. And when he comes back, he's got this glowing orange sacred heart that's absolutely impossible to miss for anybody that's ever seen any Catholic iconography. Mm-hmm. So it's and then at the end, he promises the children that he'll always be with them in their hearts. And then he ascends back to heaven. So uh, you might think now. Somebody's yanking our chain here, you know, and yet when Spielberg was asked about it, he said, none of this is intentional. At first, he denied it, that it was intentional. They asked him about the sacred heart thing. And and he he said, OK. He says, I will admit that by this point, when we were almost finished with the movie, he said, I realized that some of this was here. And he says, I did. I do remember uh, tapping into some of the Catholic uh, images I'd seen. And that probably is where the red sacred heart came from. OK, interesting. So he's it. it so uh, he said, oh, he, he always whenever he was asked about this is E.T. a Christ allegory. He says, please don't say that so loud. He says, you'll hurt my mother's feelings. <laughs> my mother's a nice old Jewish lady. And, uh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, well, I mean, she yeah. was, you know, when, when he, uh, yeah, when, you know, when E.T. like rises from the dead, you know, with like the, the white. Uh, oh, yeah, he comes back in white robes. And yeah, the, the whole thing, know, I mean. he, looks, he looks like a wizened little rabbi. I mean, you know. <laughs> right. Now, yeah. the, the thing that's most interesting to me in both these cases, in the case of E.T. and in the case of Day the Earth Stood Still, we have a sort of 
we have imagery that seems to have sort of pushed itself in on its own, at which point some of the people involved sort of semi-consciously cooperated with it, or in the case of Edmund North, consciously. But uh, that is very interesting because it doesn't, it seems, the imagery seems to have started out with secular people, many times with Jewish people. Hmm. Another really good example is Superman. The original Superman creators were uh, Siegel and Schuster, right. two uh, Jewish, New York Jewish uh, comics artists. Yes. Who were looking for something new. And they came up with this variation on uh, John Carter, Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter. John, John Carter was essentially the inspiration for Superman. He goes to Mars, where the low gravity and his uh, stronger muscles from having fought Earth gravity all his life make him a Superman. Mm -hmm. And uh, Siegel and Schuster admitted that, that the Superman is sort of John Carter in reverse. Okay. He comes from another world where his physical nature, uh, when he gets to Earth, make him a Superman, make him okay. stronger and, and more invulnerable and all the rest of it. But if you look at the Superman stuff, it's the same stuff. It, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, the uh, Superman's real name, Kal-El, and his father's name, Jor-El. El is, is in Hebrew, a, uh, one, of the, one of the names of God, right? Right. Uh, uh, the, you know, he comes, he's adopted, he comes to earth. He's adopted by a humble foster family. Uh, he goes to, uh, the big city and works miracles and saves suffering people and, uh, uh, you know, all the rest of it. There's, uh, uh, in the 1978, uh, movie with Chris Reeve, once again, the screenwriters sort of consciously cooperated with it. So that uh, a lot of uh, Marlon Brando's dialogue sounds like it comes out of John's gospel. And uh, the yeah. Superman's, Superman's spaceship looks like a Christmas tree ornament, the star of Bethlehem. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's just a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yes. But, I'm, uh, I'm sending them you, my son, my only son. That's right. The, the, the son lives in the father and the father in the son. Oh, yeah. No kidding. And, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, the... Uh, once again, a story with a Jewish origin. So people steeped in the Old Testament uh, produce the story of a suffering Savior. What a surprise! There's an actually there's they actually did it in real life too. There, there's a book uh, by so I, I think he may be a rabbi. I'm not sure, but it's it's a book on uh, the the Jewish origins of the comics. And the I love it because of the title. It's called Up, Up, and Oive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's just brilliant. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the thing that's fascinating to me, getting back to King Kong and how it is that the king and the god winds up on a cross in this old monster movie. Uh, you know, I said that that we see here kind of a, a, a these ideas almost seem to be pushing their way in on their own. And C.S. Lewis, when he was asked about how he came up with the idea of Aslan the lion for his Narnia stories, uh, you know, did he sit down consciously to write uh, an allegory to help people become Christians? He says, no, actually, I started with the idea of the world of talking animals, and my very first image was the image of the 
of the lamppost in the snowy wood. Hmm. But he says, the longer I wrote, I found that there was this other element that kept knocking at the door, kept, kept trying to push its way in on its own. Hmm. And I, I think we're seeing that in a lot of this stuff. And so in all the years that I've been thinking about this and stewing it all over, uh, uh, I, I'm beginning to believe that we're seeing a phenomenon that uh, that some of the early apologists and church fathers, most specifically Justin Martyr, great favorite of mine, mm-hmm. uh, he believed that all mythology has this in it. Uh, uh, he he wrote a, a book about uh, uh, about the pagan myths, the Greek uh, poets and Greek mythologies, which are also all full of stuff like this. And uh, Justin comes right out and says that God is real. He's really there. Uh, and he's constantly trying to call people to himself. So the reason these things are in our stories Jew or Gentile, conscious or unconscious, is that God is constantly telling us about his son. Right. And that when we, uh, uh, you know, when, I mean, think about what are filmmakers trying to do? They're trying to tell the most stirring, (coughs) most resonant story that they can. In other words, they're trying to move people because the more moved you are, the more tickets will sell. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was St. Augustine who said that we all have a God-shaped vacuum Right. In our hearts. Right. Um, audiences have that, too. So conscious or unconscious, quasi-conscious, whatever, we're all sort of looking to fill the God-shaped vacuum. And it shouldn't be too surprising, according to Justin and some of these early, early apologists, that we, we look at the shape of the vacuum and we make, we sort of carve an image to fit it. And this is our way of trying to address the vacuum. Yeah. And if it comes out looking like the real Christ, it shouldn't be too surprising to us. Yeah. So uh, in meditating on in what sense King Kong died for our sins, uh, it led me to a, a pretty long way into a pretty profitable thought pattern, pretty good train of thought about how why Christ figures happen and what they tell us about Christ. Each one of them is different, so I found out that they tell us different aspects of Christ, different things about Christ. He's multifaceted, so there's plenty of room to have very different uh, uh, images. None of them perfect mm-hmm. because, you know, you, only he himself can be a per- the perfect image of the Son. But uh, uh, but our human figures can uh, uh, can tell us in a pretty interesting way, sometimes in a more powerful way than than strictly Christian sources, because we're we're you know, we've been a little dulled to uh, right to the New Testament or whatever. Sometimes we can be startled back into an awareness of what this all really means by finding the story acted out in some, in some really odd fancy dress, uh, crazy Halloween costume like ET or Thor or somebody, you know? And, uh, but it's amazing how often the thing happens, these Christ figures. Uh, it's, I mean, it's in 
when it, when it happens in say the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, mm -hmm. it's there because of, of a mixture of the two things. In other words, some of the ideas are in the original stories, but in the case of those Spider-Man movies, Alvin, Sar Alvin Sargent, the screenwriter, is a very conscious and, uh, uh and serious Catholic. Mm. So he, he was, he was very consciously, uh, collaborating. If you see what I'm saying, yeah. with both the spirit and the original mythology, but, uh, uh, other people do it to greater or lesser degrees. And there are examples of it where it just comes out amongst people who not only, uh, didn't, weren't doing it consciously, but, but, you know, kind of vehemently deny that it's really there, you know, and I just find it all pretty endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the, this way in which this happens consciously and unconsciously, uh, I, I think really is one of the one of the stranger and more beautiful witnesses to the reality that we are made in the image and likeness of God, and it it can't be suppressed. One of the reasons that I appreciated uh, Babylon Five was that although it was written by an atheist, it was written by an atheist who <laughs> clearly recognizes that something that Gene Roddenberry stubbornly refused to acknowledge, <laughs> that religion is not going anywhere. It's just right. not going anywhere, you know? The, di the difference between J. Michael Straczynski... Maker, writer of Babylon 5, creator of Babylon 5, and Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek, is the difference between an atheist and the village atheist. Right. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Straczynski is an atheist, but he's got no axe to grind. Right. Well, and he knows and, what people are made of. You know, I mean. Right, right. You know. Uh, Roddenberry has this, you know, I mean, Roddenberry's vision of the world is, you know, it's more lightweight than John Lennon's imagined. I mean, it's just, you know, that there's going to be this in, in 200 imagine, years. Imagine no religion. Right. In two the or world would be the better, a better place without it. Right. In, in 200 years, we're going to abolish money and we're going to... Right. You know, we'll just religion will just be gone, and nobody will be asking these kinds of metaphysical right, questions right. that have haunted the human race for thirty thousand years. You know, it's just all gonna it's all gonna be gone. Uh, right? Yeah, I I I think Straczynski is a is a really great uh, writer, and I think he did great stuff there. He uh, yeah. He, he he told people he said I I may be an atheist but it I, it's not because I hate religion or I'm disinterested in it it's a very interesting subject right and uh, not many atheists can do that they're they're usually yeah uh, touchy yeah and he, yeah so. And he, so he's got res he's got respect for his characters that way uh, yeah. and uh, and so it was one of the things and he writes you know. Uh, some really quite moving stories that put that right at the center. Um, Speaking I, of Star Trek. Oh, sorry. You, let me fin you finish your thought. And then no, I'll no, no. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Speaking of Star Trek, my two of my two favorite movies with Christ figures, science fiction or, or fantasy type movies with Christ figures, my two favorite 
are uh, have an astounding degree of theology and a Christian theology in them. And one of them is Star Trek, the motion picture. But we don't have anywhere near time enough to go into it right now. That's for another podcast. Star Trek, the motion picture will astonish you, I think, if uh, if you when you realize how much, um, you know, almost Athanasius, Athanasian theology is in Star Trek, the motion picture. Hmm. It's stunning. <laughs> we'll have to do it sometime because it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, okay. <laughs> the uh, uh, and the other one is Tron, the original Tron, another 80s classic. Uh, the original Tron ha- is a perfect way to explain uh, Arianism and Trinitarian theology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tron has two Christ figures in it, uh, neither of which are heterodox in and of themselves, but... Both of them are subject to abuse and to lead you to heresy if you take them too literally. And the movie introduces, at that point, the movie introduces a third, an Orthodox Christ figure, who helps round out the trio. And if you look at them all three together, you'll understand Trinitarian theology. Okay. Does that sound like I'm completely insane? (laughs) That that I'm on LSD like like, uh, Steven Lisberger, the guy who made the movie? (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but Steven Lisberger is great, is a great hero of mine. He's, he made two movies okay. because he was too he was too bananas and too wonderful to stay in Hollywood too long. But he was essentially a, a hippie uh, who found himself realizing that computers. Well, it's what Timothy Leary said that the that he, Timothy Leary before he passed said computer stores are going to be the head shops of the future. Okay, <laughs> and for Steven Lisberger, who was interested in both the uh, LSD and religion, okay, uh, he uh, made this movie Tron to show how that could be. But it's it's full of incredible, incredible Christian stuff. Okay, some of which he se- some of which he seems to have been partially conscious of. Okay, you but, know, I, had, I had a conversation the other day with this very nice lady who uh, I think for a lot of uh, serious Catholics, she would drive them straight up the wall. You know, uh, the earth is this conscious, sentient being, and, uh, you know, we we need to get in touch with the goddess and all of that, right? Right. And, uh, but she was... She was very nice. She was very nice, for, as those guys tend to be, as a, you know. Sure. Uh, and uh, so we wound up having this conversation, you know, and she said, Christianity gets things partly right with the conception of the church as the body of Christ. So she was, in other words, she got the idea of uh, c- corporate responsibility. Each is responsible for all when one member of the body suffers, all the members of the right, body suffer. Right, right. She was getting that, right? Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, but it doesn't take into account, uh, you know, that this extends to all of creation and so on and so forth. And I wrote her back and I said, you know, actually, 
Paul calls Senator Romans eight, right? Yeah, well, exactly. I said Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, and and in fact, Christian doctrine uh, does extend to the reality that God is the both the creator of all, but also the redeemer of all creation. So we do not believe, you know, as N.T. Wright famously said, Christians don't believe in life after death; they believe in life after life after death. Uh, because we believe in the resurrection of the body, and therefore, because bodies have to be somewhere, uh, we believe in the new heaven and the new earth, and that the redemption of Christ really does extend to the redemption of all of creation. Right. And I, think was, your lady, I think your lady friend was arguing against what she thought is Christianity. Well, as so many do, you know. <laughs> as so many do. And, and as so, so many do. You know, but what was what was nice was that she was like, oh, you know, <laughs> that had never occurred to her. She she didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, it was heartening to see that, and and you do see that a lot. And this is a theme that runs through Christian tradition. You know, is uh, that it's often the outsiders that that are. We'll we'll listen and we'll get it, you know. So it's the Roman right. centurion that listens well, to Jesus. It, you know, Chesterton said that that most Westerners, most ex-Christians, he said, were already bored of hearing what they'd never heard before. Right. And uh, he said in his introduction to or- Everlasting Man, I think he says, uh, "I almost wish that we could uh, present Christianity to the world in Chinese dress." so that they could look at the 12 apostles as uh, interesting aliens and foreigners with something on their mind, you know. And he says, if you yeah. can do that, you might get them to listen for the first time. Yeah. And uh, I think that's what really these crazy Christ figures and all of these myths and, and science fiction fantasies are good for. Yeah. They're good for, uh, they're good for coming at Christ from a different angle than people are used to. And uh, maybe seeing him for the first time, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, I, you know, I, I'm i not sure how to wind up this. Uh, <laughs> this. Well, I, I, guess, uh, I guess that we might be, <laughs> I guess uh, that we might be running out of time. Yeah. Uh, how about this? Let me make this as, as a commercial for my new podcast, The Popcorn Cathedral. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Let's, let, which we'll, ought we'll to be. This is what we're going to do constantly on the Popcorn Cathedral, what you've heard in this episode. So all right. this is what that show's all about. So, uh, yeah, anybody who's the least bit susceptible to this sort of thing, and you must be, or you, there's no way you'd have listened to the end of all of it, <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, I suspect that you continue to listen to Mark's wonderful program, but also that you add uh, the Popcorn Cathedral to your to your list. There you go. Because, uh, it, it is starting up. I think the first premiere episode will be sometime between now and February 1st. Okay. And uh, uh, after that, on a pretty regular basis, once or twice, cool. once weekly or biweekly. And uh, it's just essentially uh, Christians of all stripes uh, geeking out together. Cool. Well, so if you, if you want me on as a guest, I will be happy to I, do it. We, we can, together, I'd love we can, to do that. We can crack up and go sappy. So, uh, <laughs> so if we haven't already. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much, Rod Bennett, for uh, for being on Connecting the Dots today. We will be back again in uh, a week's time or so. But until then, uh, God bless all of you. Bye-bye. So long, everybody.